This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today we'll bring back a Halloween story about ghosts on the Queen Mary that aired on KCBX back in 1989. And she was standing here one day waiting for the next tour to come in, and she looked over to her right and she saw a woman standing at the edge of the pool in an old-fashioned bathing suit. Also, Father Ian takes you along as he visits a Morro Bay oyster farm on playing with food. The fancy oyster bars in San Francisco and elsewhere, they want the tiniest little oyster that has a really nice shape, but it has a nice meat inside. And they'll pay more for that little petite oyster than I get for the big barbecue oyster. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Halloween, Monday, October 31st. I'm Carol Tangeman. The small Santa Barbara County city of Guadalupe is seeing growth, redevelopment, and revitalization due largely to some friends of the city, a nonprofit collective called Los Amigos de Guadalupe. KCBX's Melanie Sen has more. Inside the bright, sunny room of Guadalupe Senior Center, I introduce myself to three women sitting at one of the many occupied tables. They invite me to sit down to interview one of them. I take a seat and then find myself fumbling with my audio equipment. I've forgotten to plug in my headphones and can't understand why I can't hear myself, which cracks them up. (laughs) One of the women, Odelia Nino, has lived in Guadalupe since she was 12 years old. Now I'm 64, and now I come here to the seniors and, you know, communicate with my friends and have a good time. Sometimes we play Mexican bingo. You know, we have a good time. I volunteer to put, make the coffee, put out the napkins and the sugars and that, the salt and pepper out. But it's, it's fun. I like to get out of my house because I live alone. When she leaves here, she goes home and hangs out with her puppy. She's the dentist, a menace. I can't leave napkins around because she'll tear them up and everything. <laughs> so, but it's nice coming here, you know, because it's, we're like family. This feeling of family and the willingness, even eagerness, to volunteer seems to pervade Guadalupe. Opportunities for gathering, networking, volunteering, and as Odelia put it, having fun, have expanded recently, as have the places where that happens. This is in large part due to a nonprofit group in town called Los Amigos de Guadalupe. The brainchild of Tom Brandeberry, Los Amigos de Guadalupe has worked with the city to help find, apply for, win, and implement grants. The goal, as Brandeberry sees it, is to increase community resilience. The resilience plan and the work that we're doing within Guadalupe centers around how do we take what is a very close-knit community and pretty resilient anyway, and how do we build on that resilience? According to Brandeberry, networking, nonprofits, and community involvement are all important parts of this. But for him, resilience has another integral component, one that's more concrete, sometimes literally. So, for example, the Leroy Park, which was bringing a community center that was hardly used and a park that was pretty empty to a completely redeveloped park, a redeveloped community center, and people there every day, all day. And that's where you start saying that's building resilience because it's creating social infrastructures. For Brandeberry, having physical places to go matters, especially places where people can intermingle. Getting the funds to get the senior center opened was part of that vision. I think what we did in helping the city get the senior meals program up and running, we have to remember that these were seniors that just spent two years isolated in a lot of cases. So Getting the Senior Meals Program up and running, getting the Senior Center opened for business, again creates social infrastructure. Some grants, however, are more about gathering people and strengthening networks, like the grant that facilitated the creation of the Guadalupe Business Association. Brandeberry says Los Amigos de Guadalupe recently received another grant meant to help local nonprofits decide if they would benefit from a similar association. The Fund for Santa Barbara gave us um, a small grant, but an important one, to see if the non-profits of Guadalupe or those non-profits that do services in Guadalupe, 
if they see value in collaborating with each other. From a resilience perspective, I'm going to tell you, yes, there is. The networking, the value, the ability to say, I have a meeting, I have an event that's coming up next month. Can you help us publicize that event? Just on that level, I think there's value in this. Brandenburg says over 20 nonprofits gathered at the first meeting in August after receiving the grant. He says it was very successful, more than 40 people in the room. He says this collaboration and attracting funding is important because the city doesn't have the staff or funding to seek out these grants itself. If we don't play that role, then none of these grants become available. Nobody writes those grants and nobody implements the grants. I decided to drop in on one of those nonprofits. A couple of blocks away from the Senior Center on Highway 1 sits the Dune Center, a nonprofit focused on the preservation and restoration of the Guadalupe Dunes. They offer tours, information, maps, and educational programs for schools and the public. I was born in San Maria, um, but I was raised in Guadalupe my whole life, and so I have really strong connections to the community. That's Christina Hernandez, Outreach Coordinator for the Dune Center. Hernandez has been on the board of Los Amigos de Guadalupe for two years and volunteers regularly. I started off volunteering in the city of Guadalupe um, because of the mayor, Arisan Jolien. He extended his hand and not only allowed me and my family to work with him, and I said, oh, wow, we can really make a difference um, just by participating, being there every day and volunteering. And then I saw, I talked to Tom and he was talking to me about Los Amigos and how their goal is to bring resilience to the city of Guadalupe. And that really grabbed my attention. Hernandez says those barriers can take many forms. We do lack a lot of resources, um, educational opportunities. As a child growing up in Guadalupe, um, I didn't know that museums were for me. And so once I started working at the Dune Center, I realized that it was because my parents didn't have the opportunity to take us to museums and maybe we didn't get the educational opportunities growing up here in Guadalupe. And so I do see a lot of barriers and I hope to um, be able to gap that bridge. Hernandez said they were thrilled to see so many nonprofits and community leaders gathered at the first nonprofit meeting hosted by Los Amigos. Everybody is willing to put all hands on deck and that's what I'm really excited about. As people say, small town with a big heart. I think we're ready to move forward. The nonprofits will continue to meet over the next year, and Hernandez hopes that in the end they will decide to form a committee or association. I believe it's time, you know, that all of our nonprofits um, get to know each other. Our city council knows um, what our organizations are doing and get to be able to work together. So that way we make sure that we're making the biggest impact possible. Ariston Julian, mayor of Guadalupe, agrees that positive things are happening and that a lot of it has to do with Los Amigos. The city has an agreement with them for professional consultant services. They would act as our kind of sounding board, grant managers, our city contracts. And Los Amigos helps manage that. The city doesn't have the capacity to do that. Los Amigos has helped the city win more than $20 million in money for various projects and programs, including the Senior Meals, Leroy Park, the Royal Theater, and Central Park, according to Mayor Julian. Los Amigos will manage the $10 million the city received for the Royal Theater Project, which Mayor Julian says will create jobs. You know, Guadalupe, and I don't like the word disadvantaged community, it's underserved, but there's 86% of their Latino and a lot of, most of them are low income. There's a need for resources. Back at the Senior Center, lunch is ready, which means Belinda Popovich is available to talk with me. She works as a residential real estate agent and also serves on the board of Los Amigos de Guadalupe as secretary and manages the senior meals program for the organization. She arrives at this center five mornings a week at 7 a.m. to prepare lunch for seniors, averaging about 35 hours a week as a volunteer. It's a family affair. She brought in her mother-in-law and adult nephew to help prepare, serve, and deliver the meals to seniors who cannot make it to the senior center. The city is allowing us to use the kitchen so that way we can be producing all of these meals for our seniors and it helps bring um, nutrition, stability, uh, whether they are food insecure or not, everybody is welcome at our table here. Today is going to be uh, tortilla soup and we've packed in a lot of good veg into the tortilla soup and then we're also serving that with brown rice that has sauteed onion and acorn squash. Popovich feels that everyone deserves good, healthy food and holds a high standard for what they serve. It means the world to me to know that regardless of a person's income, if they qualify 
for a meal here. They're sitting with everybody else at the table getting the exact same delicious food. And the point isn't to be just producing food that nutritionally makes it. If I don't want to eat it myself, I'm not about to serve it to them. I want something that I want to eat to be served here, so that's what we're striving for. Popovich joined with Los Amigos, she said, because she likes the vision of being able to go after grant funds to start revitalizing the town. I mean, it's like a renaissance for Guadalupe, really helping us to hit our stride again, get those funds that we need, get programs back and running, so that way it brings more equity to town, because I think that's really the driver. Popovich also attended the meeting of Guadalupe's nonprofits. For her, the grant from the Fund of Santa Barbara was meaningful and important. I didn't realize we had so many nonprofits here because we're very disjointed. Everybody's in their own little bubble, but getting those funds so that way we can actually come together. There were several people that said, oh, hey, do you know about this grant going on? So I think it's critical for really the, the growth of the nonprofit sector within Guadalupe because we're all coming together. She said that during breakout groups, everyone shared information and exchanged emails. It's really organizing us so that way, instead of just being these little lone tumbleweeds out there, we are now actually a wheel. We have a center core, there's spokes, and together we're driving a lot of movement within town that's just getting more help to people and more resources for businesses and individuals alike. Their drive is to really bring equity because Guadalupe has always been the underdog and we kind of have to fight for ourselves. Popovich says that she and a lot of the volunteers she knows all want that equity and are undaunted by the challenge. Slam the door in my face, I'm gonna kick it down because I'm Guadalupean and that's how we were brought up. That toughness, that resilience already existed in Guadalupe. Los Amigos de Guadalupe is just there to foster it. For KCBX, I'm Melanie Sen. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Up next, a story that KCBX aired on Halloween back in 1989, produced by Guy Rathbun and Tom Wilmer. The luxury liner RMS Queen Mary sailed the seas from 1936 until she retired to Long Beach in 1967. Correspondent Tom Wilmer visited the Queen Mary in 1989. At that time, the Queen Mary's management had just lifted a gag order forbidding any employee from mentioning ghosts and ghostly encounters. Paranormal investigators claim the Queen Mary is one of America's top 10 most haunted destinations and the world's number one most haunted cruise ship. The luxury liner Queen Mary embarked on her maiden voyage May 27, 1936. At the time, she was the epitome of opulence and the fastest ship afloat. Every modern convenience imaginable was offered. Beauty parlors, barber shops, two indoor pools, and a fully equipped hospital. The Queen was redubbed the Grey Ghost at the outset of World War II due to her new battleship Grey paint job and the utter secrecy with which she came and went across the Atlantic. As many as 16,500 troops were transported at one time. The Queen was so despised by Hitler that he offered a $250,000 prize in the Iron Cross to the U-boat commander who could sink the ship. After a thousand and one crossings of the Atlantic, the Queen Mary came to rest in Long Beach Harbor. Until quite recently, the ship's management denied that the ship is haunted. Now, however, representatives are authorized to speak of the Queen Mary's spectral guests and their shipboard activities. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer. Please join public relations specialist Jennifer Nestegard and the historian and archivist of the Queen Mary, Bill Winberg, as we walk through the bowels of the ship in pursuit of ghosts. Hi, Tom. Yes, we do have ghosts, and ever since the Queen Mary came into port in 1967, there have been several reports of many sightings on board the ship. Right now, we're in the hotel section, which is actually where the first-class rooms were on board the ship, and there have been several accounts here as well. One took place in one of the suites. One of our tour guides was in early one day. thought she'd take a picture of one of the suites that was one of her favorites. She really liked the decor. And she came in early and she took some pictures. And after they were developed, it was found in the picture that in the mirror 
was a reflection of a gentleman putting on a tie, kind of in a 1930s or 40s attire, and uh, that was quite scary, and that was one of the sightings in the hotel area. Another one took place also in the hotel section. It's where the Queen's Salon is, just above us, one deck. And in the Queen's Salon, another tour guide was giving a tour, and she was describing um, all the wood and the paneling and so forth of the salon. And there's a little girl in the group. And at the end of poor guy's description, the little girl went up to the tour guide and said, well, what about that lady? You didn't mention the lady. And the tour guide said, well, what lady? There's no lady over there on the stage. She says, yes, there is. And she went on to describe a woman in a white ball gown. Um, that was an, an earlier period type of dress, too, that the girl probably would have no knowledge of, but very clearly made a description of a woman dancing in the room, and no one else saw it. So that was another incident that kind of gives you the chills a little bit. So those are two incidents just right here in the hotel area. Were there any ghost sightings when the Queen Mary was actively sailing, or that all the ghosts have appeared to haunt the ship after it's been birthed in Long Beach? Well, that's what's so mysterious, is we don't have any recordings of any sightings prior to its 67 arrival. The sightings began while it was docked over for refurbishment in a, a dock adjacent to us here, and a security guard was with a dog and going around watching the area where the ship was lying there vacant one night, and the dog started barking near door number 13 in the engine room, and we'll go down there later, and I'll tell you the story about door number 13. But that's when the stories all started, and they've been from 67 to present day and, and uh, we get them even last week or the week before so <laughs> they're all recent stories pretty much all right well let's uh what do you want to go down to the swimming pool yeah let's go down there we're now in the first class pool as you can see by looking around there's tons of tile and tile is all around us and it's a kind of a cream and aqua and the ceiling here was originally mother of pearl but during the war this area that we're standing in was used to house soldiers and bunks were put in here for them to sleep in the pool actually the pool was drained and soldiers came here and some were stacked all the way up to the ceiling and so they chipped off the mother of pearl so what you see is an imitation mother of pearl ceiling right now the furniture is very art deco and is original and I don't know about you, but I, you kind of feel a sense of mystery, and it's cool in here, and um, it kind of gives you a, a little feeling of the supernatural. At least that's what many people tell me. I've got the shivers right now. <laughs> um, the pool is drained right now, but it used to contain a lot of water in it. And there's several stories that center here at the pool. One was involved a tour guide again, and a tour guide was standing here, and there used to be a position here where the tour guide would stand here and tours would come in and she'd describe the pool. And she was standing here one day waiting for the next tour to come in, and she looked over to her right and she saw a woman standing at the edge of the pool in an old-fashioned bathing suit. What was really amazing was that, you know, she thought about it and she thought it looked rather strange. So she looked up to the wall, to the phone, to call security or someone to escort this poor lost guest off the property or to wherever she belonged. And then as she turned back, the image was gone. The woman was gone. She quickly ran down the stairs and looked around the corner, and there was no one to be found. She never heard a door close, so there was really no way for her to get out. Another story involving the pool actually had to do with two people seeing the same thing. And that's very unique when you talk about ghost sightings. We had two tour guides in here in the evening, and they were going through again, doing a sweep, trying to make sure all the guests were out. And the water in the pool was rather high at that time inside the pool. And they looked, and they saw the water moving just a little bit. And just then, as they watched the water, they looked at the side of the pool, and they actually saw footprints. Three or four footprints go to the back where there are dressing rooms. And they both looked, and they didn't say anything to each other, and exited from the pool. Later I asked them, I said, well, what did you say to each other? And they just didn't say anything for the longest time. And finally one turned to the other and said, well, we've heard stories about it, so I guess it's, it's really true. We also have had security come in here, for example, and see a lady dressed in a 1930s swimming suit, poised and ready to jump into the pool. And the strange thing about this image is that it's in black and white. I've been told by some of the psychics who are on board that that's often the case when, uh, when spirits like this are sighted, they're in a black and white image. Like many of the other figures that are seen on board the ship, they're seen for just an instant. And then you look away or something comes in your field of vision and uh, 
they're gone. So that's what happened with this lady. Probably the most famous story in the pool is about uh, the lady in the green turtleneck sweater. This was back a few years ago when uh, the tour came through this area. And the lady came through a door on the lower level, up the stairs, and there was a tour guide in here to give the normal presentation about the history of the pool. And as he saw her come up the stairway, he went around the back side of one of the pillars in the room here, and just again in that instant, she was gone. There was no way for her to back up or to go past him or escape anywhere. Just in that split second, she was gone. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas, and this story was produced back in 1989 by Guy Rathman and Tom Wilmer. Tom Wilmer is visiting the Queen Mary, learning all about the ghosts and the ghostly encounters. This story originally aired on KCBX Halloween Day, 33 years ago. We're in the forward hold. This is where all the furniture is stored, original furniture, original trunks, as you can see. Um, a lot of it's gated up because we don't want anyone to get into this area. A lot of the furniture and, and everything was brought here when the ship came into port. We actually refurbished a lot of the furniture and put it back up on display or in one of the hotel rooms, but until we use it, this is where it's stored. As you've already mentioned, it's a very creepy area, and you can imagine what it would be like um, late at night. Um, there are a lot of stories concerning this area, naturally. As you look more forward to the ship, it's gated, and there are sensory meters up in the front to detect any kind of motion. Well, quite often during the night, the uh, alarms will go off in our security office, and our security guards will come out here looking for maybe a cat that somehow got in or something like that, and there'll be absolutely nothing. But they will hear the sound of children's laughter, and um, that's happened on several different accounts from different security guards, as if there are children playing behind some of the furniture or something like that and they'll search thoroughly but they will find nothing. This is quite different than uh, Topside, huh Bill? Where are we? Right now in, we're in what's called the forepeak and this is the very front of the ship. You can see how the hull is narrowed down here to just a few feet and right up forward here is the, the actual bow of the ship. This was one of the bosun's lockers. The bosun on board the Queen Mary was the person who maintained the maintenance of the ship, basically, to keep the mooring lines, keep the ship ship shape. So this was a storage area for him. It wasn't really useful for anything else, so uh, that's where his storage area was located. It's dark and scary. Now, there's a story about the bow of the Queen Mary that's uh, quite fascinating. Could you fill us in on that? Right. Uh, the only major accident to happen to the Queen Mary during her career was during World War II. Uh, normally at that time she was used as a troop transport and went by herself. Uh, she went in a convoy, of course, she would have to slow down to uh, meet the speed of the other ships. Since the Queen Mary was the fastest ship on the North Atlantic, traveling uh, at about 33, 35 miles an hour, she went on her own in a zigzag pattern uh, to avoid submarines and torpedoes. Now, normally when she neared a port of call, of course the submarines would be waiting for her there. So she picked up an escort, uh, in this case off Gorok, Scotland. Uh, the escort consisted of a British light cruiser, the HMS Curacao, and several destroyers placed a few miles away from the ship. The Curacao was a World War I cruiser, and so quite a bit slower than the Queen Mary. So she kept on a straight course while the Queen Mary maintained her zigzag. And uh, upon overtaking the Curacao, they uh, zigged when they should have zagged, the Queen Mary hit the cruiser and cut it in half. And uh, both halves sunk very quickly within five minutes, and about 300 of the 400 men on board were lost. The Queen Mary had about 10,000 troops on board at that time and was ordered not to stop for any reason. So they had to wait until the uh, escorts could come in and pick up survivors. Now the stories up in this area consist of uh, when the ship was under conversion in Long Beach uh, between 1967 and 71. Of course, every area of the ship was looked over and uh, modified so she should, could become the tourist attraction that you see today. Well, one of the people was uh, up in this area late in the evening and heard the sound of water rushing in and uh, of men screaming. And he thought there was a leak somewhere up here. 
So he came to investigate and found nothing at all. And it wasn't until several years later that he actually heard of this story of uh, the Queen Mary and the Curacao. We've made our way, uh, starting to go underwater. This is the aft engine room, one of two that were originally found on board the Queen Mary. Inside this room, there are two 40,000 horsepower steam turbine engines. And it took four of those engines to propel the Queen Mary across the Atlantic in about four and a half days at a speed of 28 and a half knots, about 33 miles per hour. How many crew members were down here? Normally there were five crew members down here, um, most of them stationed at the starting platform, which is just in front of us. This is where uh, all of the orders would come down from the wheelhouse, where they would adjust the uh, speed of the engines down here and uh, circulate the different engineers and greasers and so forth who would go around and maintain the engines. And uh, temperature, I imagine it was fairly warm and noisy? It was warm. Uh, this being a steam turbine ship, uh, it was very noisy. Temperature would be about 95 degrees in here. It was better than the boiler rooms, however. Up there it was about 110. Ah, now in my pursuit of ghosts on the Queen Mary, I uh, hear rumors that there is a very famous ghost that lives nearby. Can we go see? We sure can. We have to go further underwater to the very bottom of the ship to find him. Well, let's go. Okay. This is an area called Shaft Alley. This is where the propeller shafts come through uh, from the engine room out to the propeller. And this is an area where uh, we have one of our most famous ghost stories. This is about a gentleman by the name of John Petter. And he was an 18-year-old refrigerating engineer on board the ship in 1966. Um, he was traveling through this passageway during one of the watertight door drills. Uh, the doors were remotely controlled up on the bridge. And so they were closing the doors, and evidently he was uh, trying to get through quickly or got caught up somehow, and the door closed on him and crushed him to death. It's the door right behind us here, which just happens to be watertight door number 13. Um, when I was a tour guide, when I first started here, that's the one story that I really didn't want to tell because it was so unbelievable. And it wasn't until I got into the archives and saw the paperwork on it that uh, I saw that actually it did happen. But we've had quite a few people come through this area and see a person tinkering on the original catwalks with some of the equipment, you know, dressed in blue coveralls that the crew members used to wear, and uh, they'll come up above and ask who that was, and we don't have any crew members who wear blue coveralls, so we know it's John. There's also um, another story by one of our crew members here. John supposedly followed him up the escalator that's right behind us that takes uh, the guests back up again. And they were making a late night sweep through this area to make sure everybody was gone and saw this person again in the blue coveralls and the beard and uh, they followed them up the escalator thinking it was just one of the tour guests. They waited for them to come to the top of the escalator and they never arrived. Uh, there was nowhere for the person to go either up or down when our crew member turned around, this figure was just gone. Um, a couple years ago, a tour guide was going the area and she saw a man that looked just like that coming up the escalator behind her. Um, she had no idea what he looked like, but when we researched it and found the man who was crushed, his picture, and matched her description, it matched. So John still comes down here, uh, evidently, and, and uh, tries to do his work. I have talked to a couple employees that basically refuse to come through here after hours. It's kind of a spooky area, even during the day. The Haunting of the Queen Mary was produced at the KCBX studios by Guy Rothbun and Tom Wilmer. Special effects provided by Disneyland Records. It's been a very long time since this story first aired, but over the past 33 years, the ghosts have not aged a day, and their stories remain timeless. A local elected official is taking part in a national program to rethink the way cities are designed. This is Beth Thornton. I met Goleta Council Member Kyle Richards at a local park. He arrived on bicycle. There's a real short uh, bike path that follows just the, the, the edge of the creek along the park, and then it ends. But the plan is, and we have a project in, um, 
on the books that we're moving forward with is that the bike path will actually follow the creek. This is the San Jose Creek and go underneath the railroad and the freeway and then come up on the other side of the freeway, which is right by where Maravilla uh, Retirement Home is. And then going the other way, it will continue all the way down south and uh, get, put you right out at Goleta Beach. Richards was recently selected to participate in a nine-month program with the Complete Streets Champion Institute, a national program that brings elected officials together from around the country to share ideas for making their communities healthier, more equitable, and safer. Here he is describing the program. The goal of the program is having more activity-friendly routes to everyday destinations. And by everyday destinations, that means where we live, where we work, where we go to school, uh, community resources like the library and, uh, and other things like that. Um, activity-friendly routes refers to the fact that, uh, that, that we should be able to get to those places in a safe way in modes other than our vehicles, whether it's uh, uh, walking there, uh, uh, riding a bicycle, a scooter, taking public transportation, or any number of other types of activities. Then, And the idea is that these are for everybody, for people of all ages, uh, that uh, regardless of income levels. In addition to creating opportunities for healthy activities, the program addresses equity issues and economics too. The active friendly aspect of it is a big part of it, but uh, as a foundation, the equity and the inclusivity and the access is really like a, a, something that undergirds all of it. You know, that's something that, that we keep in mind. What we see with the uh, disadvantaged communities is uh, an inability to access the public transportation or having streets that aren't friendly. And if you look at a comparison of uh, more uh, well-off communities or neighborhoods, uh, there, there are better sidewalks there. There are more bike lanes. There's more opportunity for people to get around safely. There are people that don't have cars that are dependent on other forms of transportation, public transportation, getting to work on a bike, that they don't have a choice. You know, So it is uh, important that, that this is available for everyone and that no one's left behind. And besides uh, those, you know, health benefits, equity issues, there are studies that show that, you know, increased ability to walk and bike to businesses uh, increases their um, profitability, you know, that's a good driver for the economy as, as well. Goleta is located about 10 miles west of Santa Barbara. It was once a rural area that now includes tech companies, shopping centers, and 32,000 residents. Richard says the city is actively exploring ideas for Old Town Goleta in an effort to reduce congestion and improve access for bikes and pedestrians. He says the commercial corridor is a busy stretch of Hollister Avenue, surrounded by densely populated residential neighborhoods, with few, if any, alternate routes. We're looking at taking our uh, Hollister Avenue corridor through Old Town and reducing the traffic lanes to one lane in each direction in order to add uh, designated bicycle lanes and more parking. Eventually, uh, would be wider sidewalks as well. Richard says the city gets input from the community on the proposed changes. A lot of people in the community that want to retain and preserve the history that we have. And so to some people, that just means keeping everything the same and not changing anything. But I think what we're trying to do is say, you know, that we can retain that. We can retain the character of Old Town. You know, we're not trying to make it, you know, uh, gentrified or Disney-fied. Still be Old Town, but yet still be safer and, and, and have that ability to you know, be there for everyone. We walked together through Old Town. Yeah, this is one of our busy intersections here in Old Town, the corner of Kellogg and Hollister Avenue. A steady stream of cars and city buses go by. The street is lined with parked cars. There's a recently completed sidewalk, but the bike lane comes to an end just one block up. And so you're, you're riding on a lane that has cars whizzing by you, most, you know, oftentimes very close to you. You're trying to stay as far away as you can from the parked cars that are along the street. The Goleta Community Center is on this same stretch of road. With activities for people of all ages, it's a popular place. Richards points to a recently added pedestrian activated stoplight in front of the building. He says when someone activates the button for the crosswalk, the lights turn red to stop oncoming traffic. Recent pedestrian deaths weigh heavily on the community, and Richards says more updates like this can help make the town safer. As part of the Complete Streets Champion Institute, Richards will create a project work plan for Goleta during his nine-month program.
He says he's just getting started, but he's committed to finding creative ways to safely connect different parts of the city. The Complete Streets Champion Institute is sponsored by Smart Growth America, the Active People Healthy Nation Initiative, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Upon completing the program, Richards can serve as an ambassador to other cities with similar goals. I'm very interested in applying whatever I learn uh, in, in however I can, you know, whether it's in Goleta or in this, this county of Santa Barbara or beyond. You know, I, I'm very interested in making our community safer and more livable for everyone. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. And finally, here's Father Ian playing with food. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. Morro Bay has lots of things to offer. Stunning views of the ocean, kayaking and paddleboarding, walks along the Embarcadero, and of course, the iconic volcanic plug rising from the middle of the bay, Lasamu or Morro Rock. But Morro Bay is also home to some farms, and I visited one of these farms, an oyster farm, hidden in plain sight. And in order to visit an oyster farm, one starts by getting into a boat. I'm George Trevelyan and owner of Grassy Bar Oyster Company. We're going to get on the boat, the Jenny, and head out to get my crew that's out working on the oyster farm. We have about 10 employees, but right now I think there's four of them out there. They're sorting oysters and grading them and also planting baby oysters. Good time of year for oysters. It's starting to cool off and their spawning season is coming to an end, so their condition gets really good in the fall. Is there an oyster season? We eat them year round, but you'll notice they vary. They have a reproductive cycle, and since about half of their body mass can be their gonad, you can tell when they're spawning. <laughs> And so in the summertime, they can be a little softer texture. And then in the fall and winter, they'll be more firm. That's the old oyster cannery built in the 1950s, staffed by a bunch of women that shucked oysters all day long. And nowadays, we sell our oysters in the shell. And we don't have a big shucking plant like that. But we do have a little shucking kitchen where we serve oysters on half shelf. When you say cannery, that brings up canned oysters. Do you think that might be why some people don't like oysters? <laughs> Maybe. The old style of doing oysters was to shuck them and collect the meats and put them in a jar. And they were fresh, not really preserved, but then you would ship those as fast as you could, refrigerated, and they're great for making fried oysters. That's the old style. So back in World War II days, that cannery there produced a lot of oysters for frying for our troops that were stationed at Camp San Luis and places like that. It's ironic since they're Japanese oysters. During World War II, they couldn't get more baby oysters because in those days, the baby oysters came from Japan because we are raising a Japanese oyster here. That's the species of oysters that we're still raising. So we're going all the way to the back bay, kind of off of Baywood, to a shallow area where there are mudflats and parcels of what are called state water bottoms that Fish and Wildlife Department leases out for growing oysters on. We arrived at a floating platform surrounded by blue and yellow buoys. All the equipment George and his crew needed to do their work was on this platform, and here's what they do. It's really shallow here. Most of Morro Bay is intertidal mudflats. Now much of it covered with eelgrass, and this is where we grow the oysters. So we've got these blue and yellow buoys. The buoys hold up the bags of oysters, so the oysters get tumbled and bounced around by the wind and waves and tides, kind of like a stone tumbler, rock tumbler. It makes the oysters turn out really round and really fat inside. Where would a natural oyster live? They like to live attached to things like shells and rocks and pilings. There are also a few native oysters that grow on the rocks and the seawalls and things in Morro Bay too. So this is your platform. What does your crew do out here? This is where we take care of all the oysters. We plant baby oysters and tend them and thin them and spread them out. 
when they get big enough, we pull them up on the dock and grade them and sort them and bag them up and tag them and so that they're ready for market. Do they dive to do this? No, not much because this is a shallow water intertidal place and at low tide the oysters are actually out of the water. Right now it's high tide but you can walk around. Even at higher tides, you can wade around and grab the oysters. Sometimes you have to use your toes, but we try not to stick our heads underwater. What are the natural predators for oysters? Oh, lots and lots of critters love to eat oysters. Bat rays and other skates and rays are one of the biggest predators. They're very abundant in Morro Bay. And then red rock crabs and other crabs. And now we have sea otters back here too, and they love oysters if they can get them, but they cannot get through our mesh pouches, so they don't bother us. And those are the baby oysters there. We put about 100 little one-inch oysters into each pouch and weight them down with weight so that they'll stay on the seabed and then lay them on the seabed and that's where they're going to grow for the next about eight months until we come and thin them out. Right now we're taking them by boat over to the oyster bed where they're going to live. So where do you source your baby oysters? We have a nursery at Tidelands Park where we got on the boat and that's where we raise them up to one inch of size. But we have to buy the very, very, very small babies from a hatchery. And those come from a number of different hatcheries, but we have recently been buying them from Hawaiian shellfish on the big island of Hawaii. We can buy a quarter million little baby oysters that come in one styrofoam box, FedExed overnight, and that's how we start our crop. We buy about a million baby oysters a year from them. How do oysters reproduce? They start out generally male, and then after a few years, they often will switch to being a female. The males produce sperm, and the females produce eggs. Otherwise, the oysters look the same. You can't tell them apart. <laughs> when they're spawning, they release their eggs and sperm into the water at the same time, and they mix in the water column. The microscopic eggs that are about 80 microns or 70 micron micrometers in diameter, so they're microscopic eggs. One female oyster will produce several million eggs at a time. They get fertilized and then the little embryos drift with the currents, millions of them. They spread out throughout the bay. And if conditions are right, they'll grow into a mature larva that then goes through a metamorphosis and turns into a little juvenile oyster that lives on the bottom and no longer swims. In our bay, though, they don't reproduce generally because the water's too cold. And so we have to buy our baby oysters from a hatchery. So if you get your baby oysters from Hawaii, yeah. where the water is enormously warmer, how does this species then do in this water? They actually do really, really well here. You know, they're uh, originally from Japan, which is also a temperate climate with warm and cold seasons. So they grow really well here. But, like I said, they don't generally reproduce here. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian on a platform in the middle of Morro Bay, surrounded by an oyster farm. One of George's crew took the boat and some baby oysters to position them in the underwater farm. Look, he's just yeah. throwing them off. He's just throwing them off for now. At low tide, they'll arrange them into neat rows, hopefully. <laughs> okay, so, but he's not anywhere near the buoys. No, because that is a bottom culture method different from the buoy method. So we raise oysters in several different methods here. Today we're planting oysters on the bottom, not in the buoys. What's preventing the ones on the bottom from drifting or shifting away? It's the weight they're anchored down. Hey, Nat. Hello. <laughs> it's fun out there. <laughs> nice and windy. Pretty fast going downwind, but not so fast not going too upwind. Bad. Yeah, not too bad coming back. <laughs> <laughs> this is Father Ian, this is Nat and Emma. Nice Hi, so what did you just do? We were just planting some of the seed that we put on new bags today. He took care of it back on uh, the little floating dock closer to shore. And then we bag it up into set um, mounts just so that the oysters have enough space while they grow. And then these ones got planted right back there near the rock, um, just on the bottom. So you paddleboarded them out there? 
Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just the easiest way to get them there, honestly. Kind of keeps you up above water and everything. So what's this thing over here? That is our oyster sorter, and that's for grading oysters into different sizes. And also we use it for separating the oysters from the green seaweed that grows all inside the oyster bag sometimes. Is there a particular size, regulation size, that can be sold? No, since we're farmers, we can sell our crop at any size we want. And everybody likes a different size of oyster. So some people like really big, huge barbecue oyster. At Tognazzini's Dockside, he says, give me the biggest oyster you can grow. And then other markets, such as the fancy oyster bars in San Francisco and elsewhere, they want the tiniest little oyster that has a really nice shape, but it has a nice meat inside. And they want a very petite, tiny oyster. And they'll pay more for that little petite oyster than I get for the big barbecue oyster. We keep track of when and where we planted a certain bed, and then we know, oh, it's been eight months, so we should go check that bed. And when we go check them, usually there are some that are ready for a market at that time. But they'll be pretty small still, and then we'll put those, a lot of those back out for another eight months or so to grow a bigger oyster, a nice barbecue oyster. We try to sell everything within a couple years because it would get too expensive to hold them that long and we need to get some money to pay our crew. What's the biggest expense in growing oysters other than buying the oysters and paying your crew? I mean, you don't have to feed them. That's right. We're just protecting them and they're eating the natural plankton in the water. So we have other expenses like maintaining our boats, we buy workers' comp insurance and things like that. Fuel is getting to be a bigger expense now with the higher prices. And then there are quite a few rents that we have to pay. We rent this oyster lease from the Fish and Game. We have an oyster facility, a plant on the Embarcadero, and we have to maintain that so that we can hold oysters during the wintertime because there are special rules where we have to hold the oysters on land in special tanks of water. So your expenses are mostly overhead, not the actual oysters themselves. Right. Well, the baby oysters cost a penny a piece when we buy them, and we can sell them for around a dollar. That sounds good, but then there are lots of other expenses along the way. And sometimes they don't all make it. These are dead oysters that died. So not all the oysters make it. Lots of them actually die for unknown reasons. Maybe they had bad conditions or a disease or something happened. And so we do lose a significant number of oysters. That's typical for oyster farming. And it's kind of out of our control. They're out here and then you'll, some years will come back, oh no, half of them have died and nobody knows why. When we got back to the mainland, George showed me his oyster nursery. The oysters we got in the end of August. Oh, wow. They're teeny tiny. Yeah. There's about 150,000 in, no, about 100,000 in this bin. And they've grown a lot already. They're already about a quarter inch long. When we first got them, they were less than an eighth of an inch long. So they doubled in size. And is that another bin of them? Yeah, and then this bin has older baby oysters that we got in April. And these are ready to go out on the big farm, out where the big boys are. And that's what you were planting today? Yeah. This is where we start them out. This is the oyster nursery. You're listening to Playing With Food on Issues and Ideas here on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, checking out an oyster farm in Morro Bay. We just came in from the farm, had a look at the oyster nursery, and now it's time to taste the oysters. You'll note that it sounds like I don't know what I'm doing, and that's because I don't. But the one thing I do know is that oysters on the half shell are not only raw, they are alive. This is Grassy Bar Shucking Shed. Everything we sell here, we grow ourselves right in Morro Bay. It's all the same species, but they come in different sizes. So we have small, medium, and large, and we also have our clams, grassy bar manila clams. Everything's grown back in our oyster beds and clam beds. Robert will tell you all about it. Sure. So we serve them either on the half shell with a couple of different sauces, cocktail sauce, mignonette, lemons, and limes. Um, and then we also do a delicious baked oyster with a nice compound butter, Parmesan cheese, breadcrumbs, parsley. Then we also sell them to go. So if you wanted to come get them for an event or a party or just for dinner, um, we can give them to you in a bag with some ice. 
I didn't see me explain the tumble lines versus bottom grown. We got a nice example here of just kind of the differences between the ones that are grown on the lines with floats that get rolled around. They have this really nice round shape and are really nice to present. And then the larger ones, kind of a more natural shape. Small ones were the ones on the buoys. That's right. And then yes. the large ones were the ones that you plant, the baby ones that you planted today. On the bottom, okay. yes. Uh huh. We've got a dozen oysters on the half shell here. We've got limes and lemons, horseradish, cocktail sauce, and our own mignonette sauce called Grassy Splash. And it has fresh cilantro, jalapenos, shallots, and white wine vinegar, and black pepper. I don't eat oysters very often, so you tell me how I should eat these oysters. Well, some people think that you should gag down the oyster hole, but that's not true. <laughs> you want to chew up the oyster as if it was your favorite food, like a delicious filet mignon steak or something. You want to chew it and savor it. I'm going to try some lime, and I'm going to go get some hot sauce. That's the one thing we're missing. Well, are you going to prepare one? Go for it. <laughs> I'm just going to watch you do it first. Okay. <laughs> Make sure I don't die. Mmm. <laughs> it's salty like the ocean with a kind of creamy crunchiness to them. It's hard to explain. Very fresh. That's the traditional way, right? Yeah. Is it their natural liquor that's in there? Yes. Is it loose? Make sure it's loose. Or it'll be messy, right? Ooh, yeah, yep. it won't drop. It won't. It'll. It'll be hard to get out. <laughs> okay, here we go. Yes, it's salty like the sea. Um, it's kind of like when you eat wow. sashimi. Yeah, it has the texture of sashimi, like Real ahi, ahi really? tuna, but but it's some um, give. Right. This is the grassy splash mignonette. You simply must try. That's a really nice sauce. Yeah. And then we've got some baked oysters. Serve them with some freshly toasted toast. Okay. And that goes well with the oysters. So you can dip the toast in the oyster liquor and it's super yummy. Mm -hmm. There we go. Yeah, definitely different experience. Very different texture. I'm gonna try one plain. Is that a good idea or not? That's a very good idea. Okay. That way you can actually taste just the oyster itself. You know they look like balls of snot, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm really pleasantly surprised at the experience. Now that I know that not all oysters taste the same, I may eat them more often. And only local to wherever I am. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm -hmm.